In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Thank you very much for reading for us, Elspeth. And please keep your Bibles open there um, at Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at that over the next few minutes. And as we come to the Bible, as always, um, let's pray for God's help um, in what we're about to be doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you very much indeed that again this week we are allowed to gather around your word to hear your word to us. And we pray this morning that you would open our hearts to your word and that you would open your word to our hearts, and please transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Rebecca and I enjoy a good film. Um, I'm sure many of you do as well, and so at the end of the day, when the kids are in bed, we often sit down, if we can, and put a a film on the TV. And a a genre that I really enjoy um, is war films. Um, Not because I'm into violence, you'll be pleased to hear, but um, because of the other themes that are so common to war films. Uh, Ones that we've watched in the last few years and enjoyed would include things like uh, Midway, the Battle Battle of Midway in the Pacific, Um, Darkest Hour was a great film, Um, uh, what's the other one, Dunkirk we watched, um, that was a very good one. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we watched 1917. If you haven't seen that, brilliant film, definitely worth uh, watching, particularly now that you can hire it for just a few quid on the TV. Now, all of those films um, include uh, great campaigns um, and rescues made at great cost in the pursuit of great causes. And what I love about them is they display real, gritty love. Um, not a, the kind of frivolous chick flick kind of love that you get. Rebecca the other day managed to persuade me to watch a, an adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma. I don't know quite how she managed that. But I, I, it did actually hold my attention quite well. But as the film finished, I turned to Rebecca and I said, you realise the whole of the plot for the last two hours was about one young lady trying to engineer certain kind of romantic outcomes. That was the whole thing. Um, It was, you know, even if you like Jane Austen, don't take this the wrong way, it was very shallow and frivolous. It was that kind of love. I'm talking about a very different kind of love, not that sort of love, but a real sacrificial love. The sort of love that bleeds and sacrifices for the other. It's noble and important and significant. And I don't think I'm the only one that feels like that. These are themes that arrest us and stir us as they rightly should Uh, This was brilliantly captured 
uh, by one line that Churchill said. I mentioned Churchill last week, didn't I? Here we go again. Um, uh, Churchill, when he was commenting on the Battle of Britain, in which a a relatively small number of aircraft pilots uh, managed to hold off the German Luftwaffe, and by holding the skies, they held the seas, and by holding the seas, they prevented a land invasion and the loss of the war. And commenting on that, he said this very famous line, Never have so many owed so much to so few. It's a great line, isn't it? A powerful line. Um, A lot of truth in that as well. But, of course, there is an exception to that, which you would expect a a vicar to mention. Today we're going to look and see a greater rescue of a greater number at a greater cost in an even greater cause by one man. We saw last week that the church are the chosen children of God. That before the creation of the world, God the Father chose us to be his holy and blameless children. But how? How can he take sinful people and make us holy and blameless and his children? You know, there's a case to be made that that is the question that the whole of the Bible is seeking to answer. How can a sinful people stand before a holy God? Cue the Son. Jesus is the agent who has come and carried out and fulfilled the Father's plan. And the key word that captures how he would do this is this one, redeemed. Look down at verse 7 in your Bible. Verse 7. In him we have redemption. Now, we're going to play um, a little game, okay? Um, I'm going to say a word, and I want you to respond with the first word that comes into your head um, from the word that I say, okay? Now, two rules. One, put up your hand, otherwise all of us will be shouting out. Um, And the other one is behave yourselves, okay? Um, If a word that you shouldn't share comes in your head, then don't share it. Um, There we go. I have to teach my children that, probably not you, but there we go. Okay, so uh, here we go. Um, I'm going to say a word, and you think of the first word that comes into your head, okay? Uh, Cat. Lindsay. Dog, okay? I thought that would be the one. Okay, holiday. Home. Um, Football. Rugby. Uh Okay, we're learning about people here. Uh, Donald. Behave yourselves. Trump, okay. More interested in American politics than European, clearly. Um, okay, now here's one, here's one final one, okay. You don't need to put your hand up for this one. Just think about what word comes into your head. Redemption. Ooh, weren't expecting that, were you? We'll just keep this one in our heads, okay. Now, you probably have to engage your brain a bit more about that. Maybe if you're thinking sharply, you might think gift cards. You redeem a gift card in the shop, don't you? Don't know if anyone came up with that. But beyond that, we don't really use that word, do we? Except maybe in churchy circles. If we ask people on the street, they would just be blank. Uh, What does that mean? Well, if you played that game with someone in first century Ephesus, like those that Paul was writing this letter to, they had come straight back to you with certain words. Words like freedom and slavery. Those were the things that they associated with the term Redemption, redeem. It's what happened in the slave market. You paid a price to redeem a slave, to buy their freedom. We could define redemption like this. Freedom bought at a price. That's what redemption is. Like when a hostage is released because of the payment of a ransom. 
or when you pay, someone, um, uh, pay for someone's bail to get them out of prison, except it doesn't just get them out of prison, it releases them from every claim that the law has against them forever. Redemption, freedom bought at a price. And Paul tells us in verse 7, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption. And this was the price through his blood. Real love bleeds. And Jesus bled. If I can put it like this, he paid in kind. His life for ours. And what did he free us from? From guilt. Both in a legal sense and the experience of guilt. Paul writes, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins. We sometimes sing, no, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Sin makes us into slaves with nothing to come but death and judgment. But forgiveness sets us free. Marganita Lasky Uh, Here she is, was a journalist and a prominent atheist in her time. She died in 1988, but shortly before her death, she did a TV interview in which she made a quite extraordinary confession. She said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. And then she added rather sadly, I have no one to forgive me. Most of the time, I think we're very careful, aren't we, about what version of ourselves we present to others. We want to be well thought of, so we disguise or downplay or seek to cover up our faults, our pasts, things that we're ashamed of. But there are moments in life, aren't there, at least in the privacy of our own thoughts, where we have to drop the pretense. Sometimes it comes at a significant moment in life, For some people, it's only towards the end of life as they look back in sober reflection on their life. But when those moments of clarity come, when we really see ourselves, we know deeply that something is wrong, something is out of place, that we're not the people that we should be, according to our standards, let alone God's, and that we need forgiveness. Tragically, most people don't know where to go for that. I have no one to forgive me. But for the Christian, we know where we have to go for forgiveness. Because in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And that is a happy, happy thing. All of my darkest shame and guilt all of my deepest regrets, every cruel word I couldn't take back, every nasty thought, every occasion of selfishness, every wrong action, all those things I've never dared tell anyone about, all forgiven. All forgiven because of Jesus. As that gospel song goes, oh happy day, oh happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. It is a wonderful thing. But be sure to never lose sight of the cost. When we speak of God being forgiving, 
that's not because he's lenient with sin. Do you know there's something in British law called the unduly lenient lenience sentence scheme? Um, it's something that allows the eternal general, attorney general to insist that a case be retried in court if they believe that the sentence was unduly lenient. And it was recently invoked um, because of the trial of PC Andrew Harper, um, who was murdered last summer. He was murdered in August. The trial happened this summer. And in July, the three teenagers responsible for his death were convicted not of murder but of manslaughter. And there was a public outcry because of it. Now, whether or not that verdict, that sentence, was uh, the right one, there's always anger when there's a case in the press where the judge appears to have sentenced in a way that was too lenient. We demand justice until we're the ones in the dock. Then we hope that God will just turn a blind eye to our sin. But he won't. Because he's not unduly lenient. We surely wouldn't want or expect God to be less committed to justice than we are. He's not. He is just. And justice demands that sin be punished. As a Christian, I rejoice not because my punishment has been cancelled, but because my punishment has been carried by Jesus to the cross on my behalf. That is the only way that justice can be satisfied and yet forgiveness offered. So don't lose sight of what it cost. Redemption is freedom bought at a price, and it was a great and terrible price. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Real love bleeds. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is the heart of the good news that we believe and share. That we, people who have turned our backs on a good and loving God, can nonetheless be his loved, forgiven, cherished children because Jesus died on the cross on our behalf. It's as though as the nails pierced his hands, the chains fell from ours and we have freedom. And all we need to do is to ask Jesus for forgiveness, to put our trust in him, to turn to him as we sang earlier. In him we have redemption, we're redeemed. That is how Jesus came to carry, about, carry out the Father's rescue plan. He died on the cross to redeem us. But what we're about to see now is that the Father's plan is far more expansive than we might have realized. I think I've got this wrong for a whole load of my Christian life. Basically thinking of Jesus as merely my little personal saviour. But God's purpose through Jesus is so much bigger than that. Here's God's plan. Follow along with me from verse 8, halfway through verse 8. This is God's plan. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. That's his plan. According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment. Here it is. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. You see, God's plan is to bring all things united together under Jesus Christ as king and head of everything. The beginning of verse 10 is a bit hard to understand, but it could be translated better as 
a plan for the fullness of time. The point is it's a centuries-spanning plan. Someone's described it as the divine program of history. Because humanity has turned our backs on God, the world is like a precious vase smashed on the ground. Pieces shattered and divided everywhere. But God is doing the painstaking work of taking the pieces and bringing them back together, restoring and reuniting the world into what it once was, into what it should always have been, and into what it one day will be again forever. One people united under Christ. You see, he redeemed us, but he's not stopping with us. We're just the beginning. One day all creation will be united in him. And the church is the beginning of God's plan coming to pass. Let me just show you this from the verses in front of you. So it's not just me making it up. Now you'll need to engage your brain for a couple of minutes, okay? But if you do, it will all become suddenly very clear what Paul is doing in these next few verses, okay? So here we go. In verses nine and 10, Paul's saying, God's told us his master plan. Okay, look at verse nine. He made known to us the mystery of his will. That is his plan. And verse 10, this is the plan, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Then in verse 11, what he's doing is he's saying God's plans always come to pass. Look at verse 11. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. You and I often plan things and they don't work out the way that we planned, right? Not with God. Whatever he plans happens. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's verse 11. And then finally, verse 12, the one whose plans always come to pass has chosen and predestined us in order that, verse 12, we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Why will we be to the praise of his glory? Because it will be a sign to us and others that the plan of the one whose plans always come to pass is coming to pass. Do you see the logic? He's putting the pieces back together and that's what's happening in the church. The work has begun and it will be finished. Now, we'll all be aware of the old paper mill site uh, just down on the main road, heading out of the village towards Warncliffe side. And the plan's there to build 320 new homes. Well, a few years ago, it looked like this. And now that everything's been prepared, it looks like this. And we're told that one day, it will look like this. Looks quite nice, doesn't it? But for the moment, if you go down there, it just looks like this. Not very impressive. Not much to see because the building work hasn't really begun. Now I'm told that the building work is going to get going imminently. And at that point, we'll see the lorries and construction vehicles flooding onto the site, which will be very exciting for my boys. And if you go past every now and then, um, I imagine that you'll see trenches being dug and pipes going in and foundations being laid. And in a few months, you'll start seeing the beginnings of walls going up around the place, and you'll begin to be able to make out where things are going to be relative to each other, where the roads are going to be and the rows of houses. And in those first few weeks and months, we'll begin to see those early stages of construction and the early stages of those plans coming to pass. It'll be easier to imagine when we see the work begin. That's the local church. 
And it's why it's such a wonderful thing to be part of. Because a healthy local church is a beacon of the future. A picture of God's plan for the whole world. We're like those early stages of construction. We might not look that impressive. Often we don't. But when we've seen God's final plans, well, then we can begin to see how the local church is the beginning of those plans coming to pass, you see? God is building a community of people united in Christ. That's what a church is. I I love this so much. Someone has described the church as God's pilot scheme for the reconciled universe of the future. That's worth repeating. God's pilot scheme for the reconciled universe of the future. You want to know what the future will look like? Look at a healthy local church, and that is in miniature what the future will be. A loving community of people united under Christ. That's where the future is heading. For centuries and centuries now, people have predicted the end of Christianity and religion as a whole. Um, There was the Enlightenment, and people thought, oh, well, we won't need God anymore, because, of course, God is just the one we use to fill our gaps in our understanding, and as we begin to fill those ourselves, well, we won't need God anymore. That's what people thought for a time. Uh, The communists declared that God is dead. But, of course, all through history, these predictions have never come to pass. You know why? Simple, because they're wrong. The, The future isn't a world without the church, The future is a world that is a church. One people united in and under Christ. And that should be hugely encouraging to those of us who are followers of Jesus. Our culture in the UK today constantly tells us that the church is outdated and irrelevant and at best rather silly. And you know what? I don't blame people for thinking that because sadly the church nationally often behaves in a way that is outdated and irrelevant. So we often perpetuate the myth, perhaps even buy into it. But the truth is that the church isn't the past, it's the future. It's a picture, remember this? It's a picture of where the future is heading. It's beautifully put by Paul in Philippians chapter 2 when he writes that God's plan is that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Christ, God is redeeming and reconciling a broken world, and we are just the beginning of that. How should we respond to this? Well, if you're a Christian, rejoice that you have been redeemed. Your freedom bought at a price. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, Jesus loved you to death, even death on a cross. And now you're free, completely forgiven. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. We saw last week that God the Father has chosen us and this week that God the Son has redeemed us. Rejoice in your salvation. Secondly, understand your place in God's plan. When we talk about what it means for someone to become a Christian, we often use language like, I invited God into my life, or I invited him to come be part of my life. Now, there's something helpful about that language, and hands up, I've used that kind of terminology before as well, but it it runs the danger of reducing God so much, of, of making it sound like we can domesticate him. 
A bit like a genie in a lamp, we can contain him and put him in our pocket and bring him out on Sundays or when we really need help finding a parking space. You ever done that? We've all done that. But it's such a little, local, shriveled vision of God. You see, when someone becomes a Christian, it's not that we invite God into our plans, it's that he invites us into his plan. The son draws us up into the father's plan. His worldwide, centuries-spanning plan to unite and restore all things in and under Jesus. And that is so much more exciting and wonderful than just looking after our little private ambitions. It is so much more wonderful to be a part of the big thing that God is doing in the world now and through history, building a people that will last forever, united under Christ. If you'll um, excuse me for being autobiographical for a moment, this is why I do the job that I do. There are a number of things that influenced me into um, uh, seeking to become a vicar. But the big thing The big idea that God kept putting on my heart and that I couldn't get away from is that in building the church, you're building something that will last forever. And that matters hugely. The church, and I'm pointing here not at the building, but at the people, is something that will last forever. Understand your place in God's plan and understand the place of this church in God's plan, it is so much bigger than you and me in the next 10 or 20 or 30 years. We are God's pilot scheme for the reconciled universe of the future. And finally, if we are to be a picture for the world, a picture for the world to see where history is heading and a beacon of the future and a community where people can see, chapter three, verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God, then we have to be what God has already spiritually made us, united in him. That's why in the second half of the letter, where Paul applies what he's described in the first half, he says, chapter five, verse one, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you see how he's picking up on the theology that we've been looking at together this morning? Redeemed through his blood. And he's saying, being loved like that can't leave you the same. If you've understood it at all, it will change you. It will change you into a community shaped by love. And real love bleeds, it's costly. It doesn't just mean smiling at each other and sending a birthday card. That's not church. We're told to love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, which he did remember on a cross. It was painful and very costly. What would it mean for us to love each other like that? Well, it would mean us forgiving each other even when we feel that we've been wronged. It would mean refusing to hold a grudge because of something that someone said or did. It would mean serving each other, even when that's the last thing in the world I feel like doing. It would mean forgetting ourselves because we are preoccupied in a thousand moments with the concerns of the other. 
And that kind of real, gritty, sacrificial love, love that bleeds and lays itself down for the other is a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. It's the love that made the church. It's the love that redeemed us at the cross. And it's the love that God holds out now to a world in need of forgiveness. And as we, the church, are shaped by that redeeming love, we will display the manifold wisdom of God. And we will be a community where people are desperate to be part of it. And we will be a window into the world to come. May it be so of us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your plan of salvation, worked through your Son, the Lord Jesus, who came to be a redeeming sacrifice for us, that through his blood we have been redeemed and received the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you. We pour out our praise to you today. And we thank you that this plan is not just for us, but it is for all the world, which you will one day redeem fully and unite again under the Lord Jesus. We long for that day. We pray, come Lord Jesus. And we ask that as we wait, you would help us to be a community that lives out and displays your manifold wisdom through the way that we love each other for the glory of your name. Amen.